What's going on, everybody? Thanks so much for hanging out with us for another episode of the Justice Set Conversation. For those of you back for more, much love. For those of you here for the first time, welcome. Okay, so it's time for episode 48 with Brad Sham, but this is a little different because we've got a two-parter. Brad, who has accomplished and experienced so much, and if you've ever been around Brad or just heard him, he's such a great storyteller. We just, we were rolling, and I, I you know, I, I asked him, hey, can we, can we keep going? There's so much more I want to ask you, and he's like, absolutely. And, and we end up with almost an hour and a half worth of content, and I figured, hey, why don't we break this up into two parts? So, Part two's coming in October. This is a, a teaser. If you're not familiar with Brad, he is the longtime voice, arguably the most notable American sports franchise in the world, the Dallas Cowboys. He's also served as a broadcaster for the Texas Rangers. He's done national sporting events, whether it's big bowl games in college football, uh, you know, big-time basketball events. This guy has done just about everything, and he's such a fascinating person. He is someone who, even at his age, and you know, I'll tell you, he's been doing this for more than 40 years, so you can do some math if you'd like. He is still someone who seeks growth. He seeks improvement, both professionally and personally, and, and we talk about that uh, it, it, you know, during the entirety of the conversation. Uh, but he's got some great stories about his life as the voice of the Cowboys in the period of time in which he wasn't the voice of the Cowboys and coming back and uh, stories with athletes, with, with players and the Cowboys specifically. There's just so much. I, I really, really enjoyed my conversation with Brad. But before we get started, just a reminder, I would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing to the channel, liking the video, commenting on the video, or just sharing the link to this interview or whatever other content you find uh, on my YouTube channel. You can catch all of the Justice Set conversations in addition to other sports-specific interviews and commentaries. Check out the channel. Hopefully there's stuff for you and uh, your friends, but would really, really appreciate if you would consider subscribing, liking, commenting, or just sharing the link. It all makes a difference, and I really appreciate your continued support. Okay, but without further ado, here we go. Part one of my two-part conversation with Brad Sham. This is episode 48 of the Justice Sec Conversation. All right, Brad, the first thing I always like to ask people, you can take it in whatever direction you'd like. When you think back to your childhood and your experiences, whether it's influences, hobbies, interests, uh, desires at that point, what are the things that stand out to you? Well, um, I think that I... I wanted to be a major league baseball player until at about the age of 13 or 14, I realized that was not going to happen because <laughs> <laughs> I had to make my high school team first and that wasn't going to happen either. Um, and, uh, and then I kind of had an epiphany, you know, childhood, you say what in childhood and that's broad because that technically covers six and 13 or 14. And those are way different from each other. But sometime in my early teenage years, probably before I was 15, uh, I, I literally had an epiphany living in Chicago and watching the Cubs and the White Sox every day during the summer that um, the announcers that I heard doing the games were the same guys every day, and that meant they were at the ball game every day. And I wanted to go to the ball game every day. That's really all I wanted. I just want to go to the ball game. And um, 
didn't have any concept of uh, making a living doing it, which is, it turns out, a good thing. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so so that that kind of propelled me in the direction of how do I get to do ball games, and everything else kind of happened from there. What was it? I guess taking a step back, what was it about sports that really drew you to? You know, more than just being a participant, but being a fan and, and someone who who loves sports. You know, the, there's a, that's really um, interesting considering how my professional life turned out, Jared. Uh, when I, uh, until I was about eight or nine, maybe ten. I don't think ten. Uh, I really couldn't have cared less about sports. I was a bookish kid. Uh, I wanted to read everything I could get my hands on. Uh, now we're talking about the 50s, but um, I, I couldn't have cared less. And we were living in, uh, I will never forget, living in Mobile, Alabama. And um, my, uh, my, mother's grand, my mother's parents came to visit. And my grandfather, uh, who ironically was born British, um, but had lived in Chicago for years and years and years. And so he said, okay, let's go out in the backyard and play catch. And I said, now he was a he was a huge sports fan. He, my my grandfather was a, uh, a Damon Runyon esque kind of a character, a great big barrel of a man who smoked cigars and prob- and gambled, and uh, he was a very successful businessman. Uh, but he he was a, he was a man's man, and uh, so he let's go out and play catch. And I said, no, Grandpa, I'm good. You know, let's uh, we play a game or read a book or he. And he said, no grandson of mine isn't playing ball. And from that day on, I had an interest in play, in sports. And that kind of kindled it. And But then my love of reading, ironically, combined with that, because I remember being in middle school, now living in Wichita, Kansas, and I got my first subscription to Sports Illustrated. I was probably... 12 or no 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 I had to be more than uh, no no that's probably right I was 12 or 13 and uh, and I got a subscription to Sports Illustrated and mostly because I love to read but in great part because of the impetus from my grandfather I read Sports Illustrated cover to cover and I read every syllable of stories about sports that I didn't care about I read fishing stories I read uh, uh, golf stories and auto racing stories, and I, I, I don't know why I remember this, but the Chicago Bears had a running back named Ronnie Bull who went to Baylor. Well, that was the first time I ever heard of Baylor or Waco. And, and so I learned a lot about geography and culture and uh, history by reading Sports Illustrated cover to cover. And I think that experience, that combination of a love of reading and uh, and a new interest in sports, they fueled each other, and that kind of set me off going. All right, so I want to move ahead uh, to your time with the Cowboys. You started off, uh, I guess, in a little bit of a different role as an analyst to the legendary Vern Lundquist. How did you get in that position? I know we're probably skipping ahead of a lot of things, uh, but how, how do you remember getting – uh, linked up with the Cowboys and, and I guess earning that job. It was part of it was a facet 
and not the most important one, of the job that I got in 1976. I'd applied for it a little earlier uh, and didn't get it, but the guy they hired didn't work out. So in, uh, in October of 1976, KRLD-AM had an opening the biggest part of the job was doing the uh, talk show Sports Central that I had that was started to compete with the show that I had started first on WRRAM, which no longer exists. It was on 1310. Uh, but I had I had started a show in like 1972, I think, the first call-in sports show in Dallas-Fort Worth on Sunday nights. And at some point in about 74, that show went uh, from uh, weekly to nightly. Um, and, and KRLD started a show to compete with it. And because KRLD was a dominant force in the market and WRRAM was uh, practically a blip, uh, it just blew us out of the water, but it was started to compete with me. And um, that show was the biggest part of the job for which I was hired in 1976. The other parts of the job included doing afternoon drive sports. It was the, the staff was me and the late, great Frank Gleber, who might be the greatest natural sports broadcaster I ever heard. Um, Frank was a national figure on CBS television and dominant Locally with the Cowboys, he was uh, he did Tex Schramm's radio show and Tom Landry's television show. Was very close friends with both of them, and um, occasionally did some play-by-play if it was a Monday night game or a rare Sunday where he didn't have an assignment from CBS. Frank and I were the staff. He did morning drive from his home. That was really before anyone was doing it. And so I did afternoon drive twice an hour from the station, and I was single. And so I would go to every I – I had nothing to stop me from working every hour I wasn't sleeping. And I went to everything. I went to every ball game, every practice, which I really had started doing in the early 70s, um, j- just to get into sports. And so um, – so I would go to all these events and get uh, interviews and, and get sound for Frank to use in the morning. That was probably the uh, the third most important part of my job. The most important part was the talk show. The second most important part was was the afternoon sportscast and then getting sound for Frank. Uh, and then um, came doing color with Vern on the Cowboys, and then came doing whatever SMU basketball games that Frank didn't feel like uh, doing. And so that, that Cowboys job, as important as it was, and the Cowboys have always been the dominant professional team in the market, always. But as important as that was, it was not the most important part of the job when I was hired for it. But you know they had they had won their first Super Bowl just at about the time the games first appeared on KRLD in in uh, seventy one. So I started in seventy six, and they had been to uh, three Super Bowls by that time, and uh, then they won in seventy seven and went back in seventy eight. And and uh, our management, 
It was a much different time um, economically and in our industry. Management gave us tremendous freedom to do all kinds of things. We so we traveled and went to places, and um, and, and so that just became a a more important facet of the job as the team did better. So. I would say now that the, that talk show that I was doing was still probably the most important facet of the job to management. Not that it was more important than the Cowboys, but to management, given the way the station was functioning, I would say that was still the most important part of the job. And pretty quickly, because of the success the Cowboys had on the field, and Vern and I had great chemistry, and so we... Um, with that that became the second most important part of my job, and I stayed in that role until 1984, when CBS Television moved Vern from college football to the NFL, and then I just slid over a seat. So you've worked with, uh, you know, a couple legends uh, in in Eric Nadell and in Vern, and and now you know I know you're not going to admit this, but you've you know you've kind of established yourself as just that, but. Well, I don't admit that, but thank you for saying it. Well, I, I, I you know, I, I think so, and uh, I don't know if my vote counts for anything. It well, certainly doesn't you, with my wife. Program, so you're in charge. <laughs> well, it's good. It's the only time I am in charge, Brad. I That's why I leave the house for this. I understand. Uh, I've been married. <laughs> well, what did you learn specifically from Vern? Oh, gosh. What sort of influence did he have? Let me tell you um, more than I have time to tell you about professionally. And the interesting thing is that neither he nor Frank Gleiber uh, set out to uh, overtly be my teacher or mentor. But I learned more from those two men than uh, than from anyone else, um, from being around them and watching them. So from Vern, professionally, I, I learned um, how to look at a game. I... I, I Started. I was ill-equipped to do analysis in in my first couple of years, and I started off trying to do color. And you know, I would be talking about where the guy went to high school and what his favorite foods were, and I would listen back to the tapes to self-scout as I've continued to do. And I it didn't take me listening to more than a couple to say that's awful. No one wants to hear that. So uh, I, I learned that I had to um, be around people who really understood what was happening in the game, keep my mouth shut, ask the right questions, and learn the game and learn how to analyze it for him. But from him, sitting next to him, when I started out, Jared, in 1976, I was sitting right next to him and looking at the same field he was looking at, and he was seeing and describing things that I couldn't see. And so I said, ah, I got a lot of work to do, and eventually I did. Um, I learned from him uh, the value of, and I'm not always able to practice it, sadly, the value of expressing emotion uh, while being otherwise mostly implacable. Now, Frank was even better at that, but Vern was so smooth, is so smooth, so polished. Now, he's just clearly one of the greats ever in our industry. I mean, I, I think that his career demonstrates that. And I've said many times, all of the highlights, the big international highlights 
that have happened with Vern Lundquist at the mic, that those haven't been by accident. I really, truly believe the universe directs those things to the place that they can be handled properly. And so for him, he has a great sense of the moment. He has a great sense of how to handle the really big moments. And uh, just by being around him, I, 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 I hope that I learned how to do that. I'm very comfortable, whether I do it well or not, I don't know, but I'm very comfortable with big moments, and I know it's from sitting next to Vern for eight years. But the other thing that I would have to tell you that I learned from him uh, in a non-professional capacity was uh, generosity of spirit, because um, for a long variety of reasons, I, I was an angry young man when I was hired. I'd been in town, I left town, I was uh, I was kind of at sea personally and emotionally, and he was not in favor of my being hired and didn't make any bones about it. And I actually called him my first day at work, and I said, look, I, I, which was a, a weekday before a, a Sunday when I was going to be with him in Atlanta. I said, look, I know you don't want me to have this job, and I understand why, and if I was you, I wouldn't want me to have it either. Um, but I, I've been out of town. I've been gone for a couple of years. I have changed and I'm asking you for the opportunity to demonstrate that. And if you still don't like me, after you give me a chance, fair enough, we'll figure something out. And he did. And he didn't have to. He was Vern Lundquist. He was the big, he, was, he wasn't an international star yet, but he was the biggest dog in town. And he did not have to give me that chance. And he was the voice of the Cowboys. He did not have to give me the opportunity to demonstrate my work ethic and my approach and that I was serious and more mature. He didn't have to do that, and he did it. And that's one of the greatest lessons I've ever had in my life. All right, so, you know, you're, you're covering a lot here because one of the things I was going to ask you about... I'm and, a segment killer, Jerry. No, no, no. no. Told you? No, this, but <laughs> I, I, it, the, the only challenge is I don't know... You know, I I want the conversation to flow, and I don't know which because a lot of the stuff you brought up are things I wanted to ask you about the big moments. And I, I read a quote. So here's uh, a great thing for people to understand: we're having this conversation. It's recorded. You can chop it up and make two of them. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, Ver, Ver, it's cool hearing you bring that up. I was going to ask you about, you know, how you feel like you've grown. Just you know, not as a broadcaster, but as a person, because uh, when when Vern filled in for you a few years ago, I, I was reading something, uh, and you know he he talked about how proud he was of you as a broadcaster, but more so as a person and your growth. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that side of it uh, because it seems like it was important to him, and and clearly you know with you bringing it up unsolicited, it's you know it's obviously important to you. I would say one of the most satisfying things of my life is the fact that um, f almost 50 years later, is that right? Could that be? No, no. A little more, but more than 40 years later, he and I are still really good friends. And um, he, he honored me with, uh, when he was in the first class of the media honorees of the Texas Sports Hall of Fame 16 years ago, he asked me to present him. And uh, I was blown away by that. And when, when they honored me with being in the class that will go in whenever the pandemic's over, um, 
he's going to present me. And uh, that's just something that's an honor that's really uh, indescribable. I, I would say at that point in my life, and I was, I guess, in my late 20s then, um, as Bill Parcells would say, I didn't know what I didn't know. And it took me uh, a long, long time to get to a point where I knew what I didn't know. And um, and that's still where I am. I know what I don't know. But, but, um, but for his generosity, uh, I, I would not have had any kind of success or opportunity. I mean, everything good that's happened to me professionally has happened because of what I've been able to do on Cowboys broadcasts, and uh, had he not been so personally generous to someone that he didn't like, uh, then probably none of that would have happened. Now, that's really powerful to think about, and it, I'm certain has helped me as I have gone on my own spiritual journey over the last 15 years or so. All right, so... Did that answer the question? That, absolutely, 100%. Uh all right, so you know you mentioned the big moments, and and I want to get to those. Uh, I will get to those, not just in in football, but some some big moments in, in baseball as well. Uh, but I, I I'm sure you get asked this a lot, and uh, maybe there's not a, a great answer for it. Maybe it's one that you've answered so many times it's rehearsed and and not a fun question to answer. But you're not just the broadcaster of a football team. You're a broadcaster, the broadcaster, the voice for America's team. And, and the interesting wrinkle on the, the football side is that because of the way games are televised, it's not like you're the radio guy, but then, you know, Joe Bob McGee's the TV guy. Uh, you know, you are the voice. You are the guy uh, who people tie to the Dallas Cowboys and have for a long, long time. What does that mean to you? Um, I'm aware of it, and it's uh, uh, it is a um, carefully cherished, um, I really think, responsibility. I mean, it's uh, it's either a, a providential whim or the universe's guidance. And when I say universe, I mean God. Everyone doesn't see it the same way. It's either it's either whim or providential universal guidance. That I wound that my father wound up moving here for work in 1970 while I was on active duty in the National Guard, and therefore when my active duty ended uh, and I didn't have a job, this home is where I came, and home was here. Um, everything, every opportunity I've had has come from that. So you can call it an accident. I don't think it is. And um, he, he could have taken a job in Indianapolis. He could have gotten a job in Memphis or anywhere. This is where he got a job. This is where I have had my greatest professional opportunities. And this position in the NFL is different than many others. It's, I'm sure I've never been the voice of anybody else. So I, I can't speak from personal experience, but 
Um, I'm sure it's great to be the voice of the Giants or the voice of the Rams and the voice of the Seahawks, and I'm sure those are, I mean, heck, there's only 32 of us. So it's kind of like when Gene Stallings took over the Cardinals, he left the Cowboys' secondary job and became the Phoenix Cardinals' head coach, and they were awful, and Bill Bedwell was the owner. I mean, it was just it was just a disaster. And I, I said, Beebs, why do you want to take that job? He said, because there's only so many of them, and you can't pick the one you want when you get the chance. <laughs> and, and that's right. That's exactly right. So there's only 32 of these jobs. It's not my doing that this is the one I wound up having the the uh, the chance to have, and and when you just stand back and look at the arc of the franchise, I'm Jared. I'm so lucky to have had the opportunity or fortunate to to work for a number of years with Tech Schramm and Tom Landry and Gil Brandt, but Schramm particularly because he invented the whole the whole thing that is the Dallas Cowboys, that NFL Films named America's team, that became bigger than life. And Jerry Jones has has been a perfect steward for what Tex Schramm started. And, and only many years after Tex had passed away uh, has Jerry been comfortable with admitting what I have uh, asserted for so many years, which is that they, those two guys are really so much alike. Now, and they didn't like each other when they started, and you can understand why. But th- there are so many similarities. And, and the, the visionary approach to the profession is chief among them. So it's none of my doing that I wound up here being exposed to Schramm and Landry and Brandt and Staubach and Dorsett and all of that. That was just where I was. So what does it mean to me that now I'm going into 42 years with this franchise? Holy cow, it's, it means more to me than words can adequately express because this is one of the most unique sports entities in the history of the world. And they, they're, they're fascinating and relevant when they're horrible. And not everybody can say that. <laughs> and and uh, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm, I'm just fortunate enough to be along for the ride. Now, there was a, a three-year window where you were away from the team. What was that period like? And, and you know, it seems like in, in, in talking to people, some of your peers, some of our mutual friends, they all talked about the strength of your relationship with Jerry and, you know, what maintained that connection and what ultimately, you know, played a part in, in you coming back. So what, what was that like and, and what was the return to the Cowboys like for you? I didn't really anticipate um, leaving, and um, my emotional immaturity led me to say some probably factually correct things that were an outgrowth of Dale Hansen's on-air television dust-up with Barry Switzer. And because of my emotional immaturity, I included Jerry in some impromptu remarks that I made about those on a radio pregame show one Saturday night in August at Texas Stadium in 1994. And uh, 
the result was that Barry Switzer very much didn't want Dale or me involved with the broadcast, but he couldn't do anything about Dale, and he couldn't do anything about me on the spot. Uh, but um, it turned out here here is here is the universe stepping in again. I mean, the reason I got into this business was to be a baseball announcer, and in 1995, a long circuitous um, chain of events conspired to cause the Rangers broadcast to move from one radio station to another for Eric to become the lead announcer and for a spot to open up next to him. And there was the, a, 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 there was kind of a real cultural seismic change in the marketplace when the Rangers went to KRLD. They had been uh, where they had been forever and ever and ever, and and they were they seemed a a kind of a cultural fit, much as the Cowboys were on KRLD until they left um, in in 1991, and and it kind of upset the what felt like the natural order of things. So something had to happen for Ranger listeners to feel comfortable with not hearing Mark Holtz and Eric Nadell. And I, I was known, not as a baseball announcer, and I wasn't very good the first year, but, but I was a known commodity, and Eric and I had been friends since the 70s. And so um, I got the opportunity for three years to do what I started off wanting to do when I was 16 years old. And at the end of the three years, which I wasn't ready to be done with it then, uh, I, I think I had gotten to where I was getting to be pretty good. I wasn't great yet, but um, and I certainly wasn't Eric, but but I was getting to where it, it was acceptable. And um, the Rangers, uh, I've told this story enough. I guess it's not a secret anymore. Tom Schieffer was the president of the Rangers, and he called me in uh, in uh, one day in November of 1997. And he said, um, I think you're a really good announcer. And every time I hear your voice, I hear a cowboy game in my head. Now, I've been doing the Rangers for three years by this point. But he said, uh, every time I hear your voice, I hear a, I hear a cowboy game in my head. And so I think we're going to make a change. And I said, well, um, I can see you've made your decision. I don't know why you wouldn't think that... Uh, if we just kept going like this pretty soon, when you heard my voice, you'd hear a Ranger game in your head. But I can tell you've made your decision, so okay. And uh, and that's how I went to the Rangers, and that's how I left the Rangers. And I did not have a job. I went to Japan in uh, February of 98 to cover the Winter Olympics for CBS Radio, which was merging with Westwood One. And while I was there... Um, Barry Switzer got fired and the Cowboys were going through their off-the-field uh, difficulties at that point and, and the franchise was a little wobbly, as wobbly as they're going to get. And uh, Ron Chapman was running uh, KVIL and he called me in Nagano and because and, it was their hire to make and he said... Do you want to come back? And I didn't have a job to come back to. 
And I said, uh, let me think about it for a minute. Yes. When I came back, now when I left, people assumed um, that, that Jerry and I were on bad terms because I had said whatever I'd said. Really, my disagreement was with Switzer. Um, but, I, but I'd mentioned Jerry, and I dragged him into it unfairly and, and uh, incorrectly. And, um, you know, I'd been around them a little bit in the three years that I was with the Rangers and not doing cowboy games. I did the CBS Radio Sunday night package for two of those years. Um, but I knew when, when I was rehired... I mean, obviously, the club, in the case of the kind of arrangement that Cowboys have, uh, the, uh, like you, I'm, I'm an employee of Intercom, but with the club's approval. And so they had to give approval. Um, but I knew that I had to, I, I couldn't start again after I had done it for 18 years or whatever it was before I left. I, I, I couldn't have a cloud over my head. So I, I made an appointment to come see Jerry. When I got back from Japan, and I had this great speech all prepared about how, look, uh, no one's ever told me what to say. You never told me what to say, and, and no one's going to be able to tell me what to say now. I have to be who I am. Uh, and I never got one word out of my mouth because I walked into his office, and he said, we're just thrilled to have you back. This is where you need to be, and we need to be together, and we're, we're ready to go. Thrilled to have you back. And I said, I'm your guy. That's really cool. I, I'm curious, not, and maybe this is something you, you, you don't want to touch on, so if it is, that's fine. But I, I'm uh, all, after, You mean there's, after all that we've just talked about, there might be something <laughs> that I don't want? <laughs> well, I, I, I'm curious because I always think, you know, relationships are fascinating to me. Yeah, and yeah. I, have you have you and Barry Switzer talked at all since, since that all went down and, and made things right, or have you not interacted with him at all? Um, I, I would say uh, somewhere in between. There, I, I honestly don't think it was a blip on Barry's radar. And uh, I have interacted with him some, and it's been very friendly and cordial. And uh, there's no reason. Heck, that was uh, what almost thirty years ago, twenty-five years ago. That would it would be pretty pointless. Uh, uh, and and small of me to be carrying a grudge against him uh, when I wound up where I wound up. I mean, that was just a situation that was, that was who he was. Um, and I don't think that, it, I, honestly, now I'm, I'm sure that he remembers the television conflagration with Dale, because it keeps coming up, and you, people keep seeing it. And Dale was a bigger deal than me, still is. But uh, I, I, I would not be surprised if you asked Barry about that stuff between me and him, if he, if he didn't remember it. I don't think it was important to him. It was seismic to me. I don't think it was really that important to him. And so there's really, there's no grudge to carry on. We're, you know, I don't go out of my way to look him up, but when, when we run into each other, it's been, and, and that's, by the way, happened more at Oklahoma basketball games. Um, 
about a year or two later, I was doing a game on television in Norman, and and, uh, I looked up, and he was right there. He was like 100 feet away, sitting sitting at a courtside uh, seat, and at halftime, and we made eye contact, and at halftime, I walked over, I said, how you doing, Barry? And he said, hey, Brad, how you doing? And that was it. So, okay, on we go. All right. I I think one of the defining characteristics of your broadcasting style is your ability to call the action and teach. Uh, When you listen to a Cowboys game, not only do you learn from Babe in the analyst chair, but there are times where Babe might not have a lot of time to talk because the pace of the game uh, and, and you... And, and maybe it's from your time as an analyst, but you have this this ability to teach. And I'm I'm curious, where did that style come from? Is that just your personality in general, or is that something that you developed? It's kind of you to say, but it's not anything that's that's ever intentional. The one thing that I'm aware of, um, especially as the pace of play in the NFL has increased, you know, when I was working with Vern. Uh, there weren't very many teams playing with three, three wide receivers, and <laughs> they used all the time in between plays. And uh, you know now, uh, with with the spread offenses and no huddles, and and this goes back to the '90s. Buffalo did that, and, and they might play so fast when when uh, when the when the Eagles were playing that real fast, you know, Oregon offense and. Uh, they were in a big hurry, and you they literally might not have time to say anything because in radio, um, the in order to paint the picture, the uh, play-by-play announcer needs to really ideally have it back before the snap of the ball. I want to, in my mind, I am, and you know this, uh, in my mind, I'm talking to uh, sightless people, truck drivers people in duck blinds, people cleaning out their garages, people who can't watch the game, even though I know there are thousands and thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands who are listening to us and watching the game. In my mind, I'm talking to the people who can't see it. And so I really want to try to set the formation and give down and distance. And so that means that uh, I might want it back from uh, Babe sooner than he would like to give it back. And I am a little bit aware of what he's up against, both from having done it myself and because I do listen to every game and I know I talk too much. And I, I you can ask Babe how many times I've said to him, I, I am so sorry, I apologize. I have got to give you time to do your job because he's so good. Uh, and, and it's just criminal what I do to him sometimes. But um, I'm not setting out to teach, I am setting out to paint the whole picture. And if there are any young broadcasters listening, I would say one of the most important things you can do, whether you're on radio or television, is listen to the person you're working with. So while I am looking at 16 things and paying attention to the information I'm being fed by our support crew, I'm also trying to listen to what he says because if if there's something about the run of play or the structure of how the game is being played in that moment that I don't think he's had an opportunity to say, 
that I think is really important, then I want to try to work it in. But I don't know that unless I listen to what he's saying. So I try. I'm not setting out to teach. I'm just setting out to try to paint the most complete picture that I can for the people who don't have an opportunity to be looking at it. Do one. Now, on the teaching side, I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you have worked with a number of former Cowboys and maybe even current Cowboys as they have moved into the world of broadcasting and, and maybe the most notable Cowboys broadcaster. Well, maybe right now, you know, people think of Tony Romo, but but really it, it you know, to me, it's Troy Aikman. And uh, my understanding is you were instrumental in, in some way, shape or form in, in helping him uh, transition to the booth. And he's now, uh, you know, a longtime member of, of Fox's number one team and with Joe Buck and, you know, his his turned into this tremendous analyst. What what have those experiences been like, and, and specifically with Troy, someone who, who seems so diligent and uh, hardworking? I, I imagine that was a, a fun experience. What was that experience like? Uh, phenomenal. And, I'm, and I am so uh, proud of having been able to help, and they say this, I wouldn't take credit for it, but Troy and uh, Daryl Johnston, uh, and a little bit uh, Michael Irvin, and uh, the, you know a little bit with Tony. Tony didn't need much of my help. None of them needed much of my help. But um, they have been very kind in, uh, and especially Troy and Daryl, in talking about um, what what help I was able to give them. Um, it's it's a, to me it's a great story. Uh, the reason. The, Troy and I were pretty good friends. He was near the end of his career, and uh, Dale Hellestray, the long snapper, had been doing analysis on uh, Fox Sports Net of NFL Europe games. And I thought, that's a great gig. I would like to go do that, and you know, who knows what it could turn into. And we were flying home from a road game, um, probably Aikman's last year or next to the last year, and... Uh, he and Hellestray were sitting together in first class, and I walked up to talk to Helly about who do I talk to to see if I can get in the rotation to do some games in Europe. So I wasn't even talking to Troy. Troy was reading the magazine. And I'm talking to Hellestray, and uh, Troy looks up. He says, that sounds like fun. He said, I, I'd do that if I could do it with you. And uh, I said, Actually, what he said was, that sounds like fun. I wouldn't mind doing that. And uh, I said, great. Talk to the people at Fox. He said, no, I'm serious. I would do it if I could do it with you. And I said, I'm serious. I can't get through to them on the telephone. If you call, they'll all talk to you. And that's how we wound up going. And uh, he, he was going to do two games in a weekend, and he and I were going to do a game together and he was going to do a game with Hellestray and whoever their play-by-play man was. We were doing the game in, uh, I want to say, in um, Frankfurt, uh, but it could have been Dusseldorf. Anyway, it was in Germany, and the other one that he was doing was in Scotland. And um, he he had there was <laughs> he had nothing on the line. He wasn't thinking about doing television. He was still playing. And um, so he was completely relaxed. Now, the one thing that people didn't understand about Aikman was 
what his personality was like and how funny he was and how easy and open and informative he was because, like with Landry, like with Garrett, like with most quarterbacks and head coaches, what people know is what they hear in a press conference and see in the little snippet that the camera shows them on the sideline. Well, that's not all of who the person is. That's just that little snippet of it. So people thought he was an emotionless, humorless robot, and that was could not have been further from the truth. The story goes that he and I are doing this game, and we're having a great time. He, he, is, he is there for giggles. And uh, Ed Gorin, who was the president of Fox Sports at the time, was walking through, and I've talked to Ed about this, and he's confirmed it. He's walking through the control room on a Saturday in Los Angeles, and he hears this game, and he stops, and he says to the people in the control room, I thought Aikman was doing this game. Who's doing it? And they said, that's Aikman. And he said, we got to talk to him. He just was comfortable with me, but he also didn't have anything on the line. He wasn't trying to be a a television announcer. So they were able to hear the real him. And then the next year, he retired, and they hired him. And then we went back and did the first five weeks of the season together in Europe. And we were based in London. It was just an amazing time. And he... The night before the first game, he might not like me telling this story, but tough, he can hunt me down. Um, The night before, now he's been hired already. Fox has hired him. And so now he is brushing up for what's going to be his job. So it's uh, a Wednesday night, we're flying on, or it's a Thursday night, we're flying from London to wherever we're going in Germany on Friday. And we're staying in the same apartment building. And he called me down, and, and he was nervous as a cat. And he said, these people are all, they're just talking to me. Everybody's giving me a different approach and different idea. And I said, hey, relax. What, when you played, you, you had the quarterback coach in your ear, and you had the offensive coordinator in your ear. You had the backup quarterback and the head coach, and every receiver's open. And then you listened to them until you just told them to shut up, and then you did what you knew was the right thing to do. Just do that. And just say what you see. I got you. Don't worry about it. I, I, was, I felt like I was the one who had a lot more at stake because I was trying to prove myself to Fox. And he, all he had to do was be Troy Aikman. So I don't think I did anything other than provide a comfort zone for him because we knew each other and he knew that he could trust me and I was going to, and I was going to let him be him. And by the way, you didn't ask this, but I'll throw it in. I think that Jason Witten suffered from the reverse of this. My philosophy of television sports is that the analyst should be the star. On radio, it's not that the play-by-play man's the star, but I got to tell you everything. I got to tell you what to smell. I got to tell you what color everything is, let alone the formation and the play and everything else. But on television, there's a picture for all that. And my job should be, much as I hate the word should, on television, my job should be to drive the bus. You're the star. How can I set you up to be the star? And that's my approach 
to television. And to me, the best one that ever did it was Pat Summerall. And that's what he did. Listen to, listen to some of his work. Now, he didn't say many words. The words he said were perfect. You know, there's only going to be one Pat. And Pat was a better iteration of what Ray Scott had done when Pat was still playing. Sparse words from the play-by-play man on television. Now, that's not how it is, but that's my philosophy. And so I was approaching it with the idea of let's make you comfortable and let's put you in a position, let me say things. I can see the picture. I mean, I know how to do the, the, the mechanics of the job. Let's, let me say things that will enable you to be the best you that you can be. And um, if, if I was able to do that in a way that was helpful to him and let him be relaxed and show everybody what he could do, then I'm really grateful, and he and Daryl especially, and Michael also, uh, have been uh, more than generous with the things they have said to me and about me and helping with them. It's just the greatest honor. And the same with Tony. It was I was able to do I don't know four games, five games, something like that, with Tony practicing in a in a studio to help him get ready. And you know by that time I I kind of knew the business, and I was able to say, look, you might want to look for this. This is how this is now. It's not going to be like that. Plus. I knew that Jim Nance had a great deal of emotional investment in Tony's success. I didn't have to do very much. I just had to get his feet wet and give him a little bit of an idea of the difference between doing it from field level and doing it as a broadcaster. But um, it, it's just a great honor to be able to help guys like that who um, turn out to be so good, and they and they want to be good. They wanted to be good players, and they want to be good broadcasters. And so it, working with someone like that's an honor. So think about that. You you spend your time as a broadcaster watching some of the world's greatest athletes and specifically uh, some of the, the best at their sports. And that was the case with the 90s Cowboys and Troy Aikman, one of the, the best quarterbacks of all time. And uh, you just you, you watch these guys in awe and admiration and then they try and kind of cross over into your arena. And now they're, they're seeking out some help from you. Uh, and it's really cool that you know, they feel that way about Brad. You know, let me tell you something. Troy Aikman, as you know, probably could call on anyone uh, and could have called on anyone at that time, but he, he had such respect for Brad that he went to Brad. That's uh, that's pretty neat uh, and, and cool hearing Brad share that story. Uh, remember, this is just part one. Part two's coming up in October, so giving you a little time. We're going to throw some other flavors in the mix, and we'll get back to Brad in October, but... I really enjoyed part one, and and I really am excited to share with you part two coming up in several months. All right, episode 49 is being released later this week, and you're going to get a chance to hear from Sarah Perlman, broadcaster for uh, Masson, broadcaster for NBC, and now she's, uh, she's doing something different. She's got a really interesting story, and I'm looking forward to sharing that conversation with you coming up later this week. Until then, be safe, stay healthy. Talk to you later.